Well, it's been great to have been here this morning to um, give thanks to God for the life of Mia, who's making an exit now. And uh, here, Wellesley and Hannah dedicate themselves to bringing her up in the, the Christian faith. If she's anything like her parents, she'll probably uh, grow up to be intelligent, attractive and sporty. But uh, the most important thing that uh, her parents want for her is to have her own personal Christian faith. So as any parents here will want for their own children. But what does that mean? You know, what difference would it make for her? How could she be different from anybody else here this morning who may not call themselves a Christian? Is it simply that she'll come along regularly to church and lead a, a good life? Well, this passage here this morning makes it clear that it's about more than that, isn't it? Have a look at verse 5 there, where it says, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Becoming a Christian is living a life in which we seek to please God. To please God rather than ourselves, which is basically what sin is, isn't it? As it says here, a sinful mind is a mind that is hostile to God. The Bible tells us we're either friends of God or enemies of God. And the different consequences which result from our standing with God, our, our um, response to God and his, uh, his good news. The man, it says here, the mind of sinful man is death, but a mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. And that is what Wells and Hannah want from here. They want her to enjoy that life and peace, peace with God. That is what uh, she's made for. That's what we're all made for, to enjoy peace with God. Well, we're in the middle of a sermon series on change. And um, for our Christians here this morning, what we have in common is that we have had our lives changed by Christ. That, I think, is probably a better acronym for LCBC than the Long Crendon Baptist Church. Lives changed by Christ. So now we desire God. But what this series is about is not accepting that that is a one-off change that stops when we become a Christian, but it's an ongoing process of change throughout our lives. So if I always look at the question of the, what do we want to change, or what does God want to change in us? Which the answer was to be recreated in the image of his Son, Jesus Christ become more like him. That should be our goal. We looked last week at uh, 2 Peter and the question, well, why do we want to change? Why is it important to change? And three things came out of that passage, uh, to keep us from being ineffective in our knowledge of Jesus, so we don't forget that we have been forgiven, and to make our calling and election sure, to be sure of our faith. In short, to enjoy the freedom the freedom from sin, the delight in God that he gives us through Jesus. To enjoy our new identity of being a child of God. So this morning we're looking at the question of how we are going to change. How are we going to change? Let me just introduce you to um, three fictitious people. John is uh, a recent convert. He's already experienced change in his life as he's become a Christian. He's really excited about the, the prospect of further change. He looks at it a bit like a, a project. This is going to run a marathon. He's training for a marathon. He can look ahead. And he's quite excited about the change that's going to take place in him. Sue has been a Christian now for um, seven or eight years. He's feeling a little bit frustrated. 
think she thought everything would be, be fine, that uh, she would kick that, that habit of, uh, of gossiping. She would no longer envy those who have more than her. She would no longer need to keep impressing other people. But a few years on, it's not working out quite as she'd imagined. Yes, she uh, still believes in Jesus, she's still committed to the church, but some of that passion has gone. Bob has been a Christian now for more years than he can remember and uh, can look back on times gone by when he was uh, passionate in his faith, he was growing strongly. But now he's sort of almost resigned to thinking, well, he's probably changed as much as he can. Um, maybe he's a bit more negative and cynical than, than he should be, but you know, at least he's not as bad as, as some others that he, that he knows. I don't know if any of those resonate with you, but um, if so, I do hope this morning that we will have a more realistic understanding of the process of change. That if you are feeling a little bit despondent, maybe a little bit complacent, that you'll be filled with uh, a new hope, a new optimism, and a new passion. The good news about becoming a Christian is that we don't need to worry about trying harder to change ourselves and become some sort of better person. Because in the same way that God enabled us to become Christians in the first place by his grace, he will enable us to become more like Christ if we put our trust in him, if we ask him to. And the key to how we will change is through the work of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, through his power at work in us. So let's see what this passage tells us about life through the Spirit. And the first thing we see here is that the Spirit brings life and freedom. Chapter 8 starts with these great words, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Now, you may, you may know that. It may be news to you. But one question you may have is, how can this freedom from sin be possible when as Christians we do still sin? Now, Paul ends the, 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 uh, the previous chapter with the words, in the, in the sinful nature, I am a slave to the law of sin. Well, the answer comes in verses 3 and 4 if we read on of chapter 8, because what it says here, it says, For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. The law, God's uh, instruction to the people in the Old Testament, was unable to give life, because our sinful nature makes it impossible for us to keep the law perfectly, to perfectly please God in that way. But it was designed to, to make clear to us our need for a righteousness from God, a righteousness that Jesus himself would bring. God, it says, did. He stepped in and he achieved what the law could not do, was not meant to do, by sending his son Jesus. What exactly did Jesus do? Well, it says, he came as a sin offering. became a sin offering. In other words, he sacrificed himself to atone for our sins. God's righteous law required that sin be punished by death. And in the Old Testament, they had regular animal sacrifices, but they were, they were temporary. They had to be done repeatedly, time after time. But in the death of Jesus, 
God's justice was satisfied once and for all. And the result for us, as it says here, there is no condemnation. We are free. We are free from guilt. We are free from the penalty of sin. If we are in Christ Jesus. And these opening words of um, chapter 8 really just sum up the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ in a nutshell. Because Jesus died for us, we need no longer fear death and condemnation. And instead we can live life to the full. We know this is a preparation for the real life to come when we go to be with God. It brings a new freedom, it brings a new purpose to the way we live our lives. Now the trouble is, before we go on, though, there are two common temptations for Christians. One of those is to somehow think that um, the sacrifice just wasn't quite sufficient and that somehow we still need to, to prove ourselves, to, to make up for what Christ hasn't done, to, to somehow live our lives as well as we can, um, setting ourselves rules which we can keep and feel quite good about ourselves, and somehow just prove ourselves maybe to, to other people, prove ourselves to God, somehow prove ourselves to ourselves if you like. But it doesn't take much before that becomes a sort of self-righteousness, where we become quite proud of ourselves, we trust in our own efforts. And that is sadly the view that um, many who are not Christians will have of, of Christians. They will look at them and think, well, they just think they're better than anybody else. They think they're superior. The second uh, temptation is to read these words in verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And stop there. And think, well, great, the work's been done. My eternity is secure. I don't really need now to worry about anything else. And the result of that sort of uh, attitude is that our life then doesn't actually look much different from anybody else around us. And again, not Christians, those who are not Christians can look at us and say, well, actually, I can't see an awful lot of difference between that person and me. What is the point of me becoming a Christian? Now, both of these attitudes are wrong in that they have not allowed the truth of the gospel to fully permeate our lives. And we may say, well, I know that's not me, I don't, I don't do that. But there may be aspects of those which we may do from time to time without even realising it. But the verse here carries on. Because it doesn't stop there with a the condemnation. It says, God condemns sin and sinful man in order that, verse 4, the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. We are now living lives a different way. We're not living lives according to the sinful nature. We're living them according to the Spirit. The ultimate purpose of the atonement, of that sacrifice, is our holiness. For us to live according to the Spirit, to be like Christ. And it's as we keep going back to the cross, keep going back to the sacrifice of Christ, that we will hopefully resist those two temptations and actually enjoy the life Enjoy the freedom of the gospel. Freedom to live not by the law, but by the Spirit. What does that that living by the Spirit mean, though? How does the Spirit make that possible? If it's down to Him, um, what exactly does the Spirit do for us? Well, three things I just want to bring out from this passage this this morning. The first of those is that the Spirit sets our minds on what pleases God. Look again at verse 5. 
Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. As we said earlier, the first work of the Spirit is to change our inner being from being one that is at war with God to being one that delights in God and in his, his instruction. Having a mind set on what the Spirit desires, a mind of life and peace. That is the whole process of inner change and regeneration. The trouble is, though, of course, although the Christian has been freed from the guilt of sin, the penalty of sin, he's not yet been freed from the presence of of sin, and so there's the struggle that is going on within the Christian, and uh, we see that in chapter seven. Paul describes it quite well. Look at verse 21 of chapter seven on the same page. He says, "I find this law at work. What I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but." I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. If we are Christians, we want to please God, and yet our sinful nature is constantly telling us to please ourselves. And if we experience that struggle, it doesn't mean that we're not Christians. To be a Christian is to have accepted that we are sinful, to have asked God for forgiveness, and to have submitted our lives to Jesus. And in some ways, that, that struggle never goes away completely. I was talking the other day to somebody from, from Cornerstone. The Paddy just preached on prayer and encouraged people to come to the, uh, the prayer meeting. And... Um, he said, it is always a struggle for me to go to a prayer meeting. I'm sure some of you can relate to that. He says, I can always think of a reason not to go. And yet when I do go, I always come away grateful that I have been, being blessed by the time I've spent with other Christians in prayer. That struggle can be the same in all aspects of our lives. It doesn't go away, but the more we call on the Spirit to help us, the more we grow in faith, the more we succeed in the struggle, which is why Paul's desperation in chapter 7 is replaced by this relief of chapter 8, as he goes on to talk about life through the Spirit. To set our minds on what the Spirit desires is not something that we have to really try hard to do in our own effort. It is to focus our minds on our relationship with God. The day when we will be with him, and to submit all else to that overriding purpose in our lives, to be driving towards that, is to accept that we are on a journey. The Spirit is our guide along the way. He will help us avoid things that will take us away from God. He will allow things to happen that actually may bring us closer to God. I don't know how many of you have read The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. It's a classic work of literature but also a great book to read uh, um, as a Christian, to understand how God shapes our minds, our whole lives, through the trials of life. It's basically saying our whole lives are a pilgrimage to heaven. Think of it in modern day terms, uh, the Spirit is the, uh, the sat-nav for our lives. We set our destination as heaven, 
And he will find the best route to get there. If we hit a traffic jam or an accident or a closed road, he will find a way around it. And we can choose to, to turn him off, to ignore him and, uh, and go our own way and end up in all sorts of a mess. Or trust that he knows what is better. Unfortunately, that nerves are not as reliable as the spirit, so I know that analogy breaks down a little bit, but um, you, uh, you do get the, uh, the idea, I'm sure. The spirit is working with, with us, with our conscience. He's, he's telling us what is pleasing to God, what is not pleasing to God. Uh, and part of the way in which he does it is to recall the teaching we have in God's word. It's there that we find what pleases him. It's there that we see how Jesus lived his life on earth. And the Spirit tells us to think, to desire, to do what Jesus himself would think and desire and do. The Spirit guides, he directs, he tells us when we're off course. But ultimately it's up to us to walk in step with the Spirit. This brings us on to our next point. The Spirit dwells within us and helps us put sin to death. Verses 9 to 13. The mark, the, the, the privilege of the Christian is that God has literally come to live within us by his Spirit. He's come to take residence in us, not to, um, to somehow control us in a negative way, but to, to guide us in the right way, as we've seen, but also to fight and to subdue sin within us. The Spirit gives us life, as we've looked at already. But the consequence, we look at verse 12 there, is that we have an obligation. And that obligation is not to do something, as we've said before, about somehow repaying that gift of salvation. That is a free gift. The obligation is with the help of the Spirit to put to death, or to use a technical term, mortify, the misdeeds of the body. Have a look at verse 13 there. If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons, are children of God. We are told to do it. We were told to do it by the Spirit, by relying on His power within us. I want to send this briefly over to um, the letter to the Colossians, we see similar language there as well. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, page 184, if you've got a church Bible. Colossians 3, 5, look at this, it's now getting more specific uh, in terms of how that works and the things we should put to death. Colossians 3, 5 says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways and the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you've taken off your old self with its practices, and you've put on a new self, which has been renewed in knowledge, in the image of its creator. That is tough language, isn't that a direct language? The spirit, spirit cannot cohabit with sin. Life and death are in opposition. And so we need to put to death anything that opposes that. And sometimes I think we have a bit of a, bit of a relaxed attitude towards sin, don't we? It's, it's, um, as Enrico Tice says, a bit of a grown-up naughtiness. 
We're very good at um, justifying our behavior when deep down we know something is wrong. But we can't just take it easy and hope that it will go away. Because it won't. We have to put it to death. It's an active work. We can't expect that um, somehow as we, we get older, we grow older, we'll be less prone to temptation. Because I'm sure many of you here who are older in years will, will agree that it doesn't necessarily get easier. But actually, as you get older, different temptations come along. If you're struggling with physical illness or mental illness, um, frustration may set in. That can be a huge challenge to our spiritual health. So we need to be constantly on our guard. Our aim, ultimate aim is to be like Christ, to be in his image. And in order to be like him, we have to rid ourselves of sin. And we can only do that with the Spirit's power, but we have to make a conscious effort to cooperate with him. John uh, Stott um, says this, and it's a great piece of uh, alliteration from him. The Spirit gives us the desire, the determination, and the discipline to reject evil. He gives us a desire, but let's take the initiative to act, which means identifying the sin and admitting the problem. I think in Christian circles, often we, we find it much easier to, um, to talk about um, problems in life, or maybe our physical problems, our bad back, um, maybe some emotional problems, rather than spiritual problems. You know, it's easier to tell somebody that um, we feel upset about something that's happened or we feel maybe upset about something that somebody said to us, which is, um, has caused us pain. But how often do we share with somebody else a spiritual struggle we're going through? Something we're going through because of our sin, our temptation. How many people have confessed to you? Or how many people have you confessed to that there's a problem you have or they have with anger? or greed, or gossip, or lust, or any of those things that we just read through there. Often it's the, um, the most humble, most godly Christians who are actually the hardest on themselves, and who lack the assurance that, um, as they still see those, those, that sin in their lives, that maybe I'm, not, maybe I'm not saved. And to them the smallest sins are magnified in their minds, which is why it's important to note that if we are struggling against sin, it is proof of the spirit of work within us. That our desire is there, but there's a struggle going on. And the last point, I think, in this passage is very important for us here as well, because the spirit assures us that we are children of God. Look at the end of verse 14 there. Those who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. So you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you receive the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Now it would be easy to think, wouldn't it? Oh, I'm, I'm failing in this struggle. And therefore fear, be afraid, fear God's judgment, fear um, whether I really am a Christian. Which is why the Spirit here reassures us that we are children of God. And that is often where the devil tries to attack us, isn't it? Sort of sowing seeds of doubt in our minds. You know, you can't really be a Christian if you're doing that, if you're thinking that. 
Spirit prompts us to cry out to our Father, Abba Father, a term of intimacy which no Jew would, would ever have used to address God. It's crying, Abba Father, it's expressing a real deep felt emotion, a cry for help. We cry out in the heat of battle for help from the Spirit to reassure us that despite our failings, we are still children of God and that can't be changed. He still loves us, he won't leave us, he will protect us. It's a cry of trust in the, the situation of suffering that as we think of the future glory, that is, that is ours. How does the Spirit, as it says here, testify with our spirit that we are God's children? Or by freeing us from the fear of death? By demonstrating his power at work within us? By making us turn to the Father for help? By giving us the hope of glory? All in all, he is um, reassuring us of the Father's love for us. If we are his children, then we are his heirs. And as a reminder, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We can look forward to a glorious inheritance. The best is yet to come. Amen. Have a time of quiet, so moment of quiet to speak to God personally about what he said to you. Maybe you want to know that life, that freedom for yourself that you don't yet know. Maybe there are areas that you are already a Christian in your life which you're not happy with, you're struggling with, and you need to ask the Spirit to, to help you actively rid yourself of, cry out to your Father. Maybe you need to remind yourself that you are a child of God. Ask the Spirit to reassure you that that is the case. Moment of quiet. Father, we thank you for the great promise in this uh, passage we've read. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He has set us free from the law of sin and death. And he did that by sending his own son to be a sin offering for us. Lord, we thank you for that promise. But we thank you also that we don't stay there. We want to grow into the image of Christ, we want to be like him, and we thank you that we can do that through the power of your spirit at work in us. And we do pray now that he would be at work in us, he would be guiding us, he would be pointing out to us areas of lives which, um, in which we are struggling and need to, to do away with sin. We pray that his power would enable that to happen. And Lord, if uh, we are struggling and wondering whether we really are a Christian, Lord, remind us, reassure us that we are, that that struggle is there's a devil trying to get a hold. Remind us of our eternal future. Give us that assurance that we are your children. And Lord, help us look forward to that great inheritance that you promised when we'll be with you and inherit the eternal life with you forever. In Jesus' name, Amen.